Hello and welcome to Kinks and Beats Daily. I'm your host, Tony Fry, and this is our first Saturday recording, a bonus episode, our first uh, chat about a full album, in fact. And I have a special guest, former co-host of Kinks and Beats back when it was a semi-weekly, monthly uh, podcast. Chris, hello, welcome. Tony, I feel like we're having a, a reunion of sorts. You know, they always wondered if the Beatles would ever get back together. No one ever thought we would get back together, though. I'm I'm actually compiling the Kinks and Beats anthology for for immediate release. <laughs> Complete with uh, extra tracks, right? <laughs> yeah. How are you? Oh, doing well. It's uh, you know, you were just talking about the leaves uh, down in California, and we've got snow up here already in Minnesota. So, you know. Living the dream up here. Can't wait to wake up. Yeah, it's it's going to be 78 degrees here today. So, Oh, my gosh. I think it's like 12 here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Different strokes, I guess. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So today we're going to talk about Abbey Road. Eventually, I'll get through all the albums of all the kinks and Beatles and solo and all that kind of stuff. But this one seems relevant because it's the recent 50th anniversary and they just had the giant remix uh, box set. And so we're going to chat about that. Uh, so we're going to kind of talk about the album as a whole, but also focus on this remix because I think it's worth talking about. And although there have probably been 25 podcast episodes devoted to it already, um, I want to be number 26. So Somebody has uh, to be. Somebody has to be, right. If not us, who? Who else? Yeah. So it was uh, released September 26, 1969. and. I didn't realize this because you always have heard, you know, the get back sessions were in 1969. They were, you know, fraught with uh, conflict and everything and broke, you know, f- they finished with the rooftop concert. And then Paul went to George Martin and said, we want to record an album like we used to. And George says, you know, only if you'll let me produce it like I used to. And John has to be on board and all this kind of stuff. And in my mind, there was a big gap of time there between the Get Back Sessions and the start of Abbey Road. Abbey Road, though, was uh, they started recording February 22nd, 1969, which was about three weeks after the rooftop, rooftop concert, which is how the Get Back Sessions ended. So you had this whole month, 30 days of uh, like high-tension recording sessions. And then they took three weeks off and then came back and started doing Abbey Road, which is this masterpiece. And then if you listen to the bonus material on this album, it sounds like they were having a good time through most of it, too. So I didn't realize that the history was that condensed. I figured it was like early 69, you know, and then they started Abbey Road three or four months later. But it was literally three weeks, 22 days. Well, it makes sense. Yeah. I mean, you think about their entire recording career is all jam-packed into what, like seven years worth of material. I mean, it's I mean, just insane how quickly they worked. Could you imagine a band nowadays, though? I mean, they basically kept a two-album-a-year schedule the whole duration of their career. Because you know, 68 only had one album, but it was the White Album. So they put out two records worth of stuff and a handful of singles. Uh, 67 had Pepper and uh, Magical Mystery Tour. I think the only year they had one album was 66 for Revolver. It's like, that's incredible output. Could you imagine a band today doing two albums a year? for seven years well here's a little bit of modern day perspective uh so the beatles did all that work in such a small amount of time tool uh 
had, it took 11 years between albums. I mean, right. the Beatles had come and gone in that span yeah. of time. <laughs> and, and same with like Boston and meatloaf and all the, like a lot of those bands had huge giant gaps. So I just thought that was, it gave me a new perspective on it. And then some of the songs, you know, you heard them rehearsing during the get back sessions. Like I know Maxwell Silverhammer's in there a lot. Um, Something was in there, I believe. Like there are some tunes that they were using for those sessions that I don't know. I just I always thought it was a longer gap. So that was interesting to me. What's your history with this album? Well, my history with this album is actually kind of one of uh confusion, really. Uh I was a dumb little kid when I was introduced to the Beatles. And for whatever reason, and it just probably boils down now that I think about it to recording quality and technique and basically their maturity as a band, you know, growing into young adults from being young kids. I thought these were two completely different groups when you compare uh, late Beatles to early Beatles, like Abby wrote to me, even though they were called the Beatles, I thought they were completely different musicians <laughs> when I was a dumb little right. kid. But that just goes to show you that uh, this band and even uh, even George Martin, to a degree in his production uh, uh, skill, developed quite a bit in just a span of really five years, if you think about it, because mm-hmm. the, the early stuff was, you know, as about as simple as you can possibly get. I mean, it was mostly cover work at that yeah, point. Yeah, that was just their club set at that point. <clears throat> yep. And then when you start talking about their actual uh, writing style and their performance ability and everything else that goes that went into what became the Beatles down through, uh, I mean, you could really start it with uh, Rubber Soul, I think, is where they really started to define the the true Beatles sound. And I just totally thought if you compare Abbey Road to, you know, something like Please Please Me to my little dumb five-year-old head, I thought those were two completely different bands. So when I look back at Abbey Road, to me, this is, uh, in my five-year-old brain, their best album. Now, as an adult, I think it's their their best produced album. But to me, it doesn't sit at the top anymore as their best album. It's it's For me, it's never been at the top. It's always been like in the top three. And it's one of those things that like, there are a lot of songs on here. I'm never going to just turn on because or Sun King, but within the context of the album, like they're brilliant. I love every second of those songs. So it's like, this might be their best album as a complete work, but it's not their best collection of songs for me, you know? Right. Does that, does that make sense? Oh, it <laughs> makes absolute sense. Yeah. And and we'll dive into it a little bit later on, but you're absolutely right. This is a total uh album listen this isn't like i'm gonna pop on a few of these songs and be done with it it's you really get a better feel for this album if you listen to it you know from track one to track you know 17 whatever it ends up being right. with her majesty at the end well let's jump right in then the, the album opens with come together which um this is a rare instance of songs from an album actually being singles, but Come Together and Something were the single off of this album. So Come Together, cool little John Rocker. Um, it's always been a favorite song of mine. I haven't I haven't covered it yet on the podcast, so we haven't talked about it yet, but you know, it's always been a cool little rock and roll tune. Got some good guitar work and that iconic drum intro and you know an iconic bass sign. I mean it's kind of an iconic song, but there's not much there to it. 
It, it is <laughs> iconic. And I think the reason for it, at least in my head, is that it's one of the most unbeatles like tracks or singles uh, out yeah. there. It, there's just something about it that is so unlike, I mean, if you talk about Wild Honey Pie <laughs> being a very unbeatles track, that, that was an unlistenable Unbeatles track. This to me is like the best Unbeatles track that they have. I don't know how else to describe it, but you can't find any other song in their catalog that sounds anything like this. And it's uh, so good. There's such a good driving kind of almost, I don't, maybe funk type of beat to it, you know, just kind of underneath with that just driving bass, which is really brought out in this mix particularly. This mix is uh, overall, all the songs, the drums and bass in all the remixes, Pepper and the White Album were the same. The drums and bass are finally given the treatment they were due, you know, just because recording styles have changed, production styles have changed. But yeah, you're right. On Come Together, I actually put in my notes, overall, it doesn't sound very different than the original mix because there's not that much there. It's basically the five of them, you know, with keyboards and, and all that. It's basically a five-piece band. And so there's not a lot there to remix. So it doesn't sound a ton different, but it sounds better. You know, it's got it's got that kick, that chorus really, like when the guitar power chords come in, that chorus really has some meat to it. Um, but it's so stripped. Like there's not a ton they could have done to this one to make it. I mean, it's it would have sounded fine in mono. You know, there's it's such a stripped back song. Yeah, and, and the things that I love about the remixes that they have been doing for these past three albums is uh, revealing parts of the song that you had never heard before. Like with uh, John's uh, double-tracking vocal, I mean, letting some of that bleed through that was stripped away from the original mix, you know, just some of John's more, you know, strange, like, noise-making that he did. Uh, I thought that was kind of a neat addition, but the one thing that I was looking forward to was just to, to hear if whether or not the lack of hi hat use as a, a a timekeeping device that norm, you know normally you would hear any drummer, and I don't just mean Ringo specifically, but the first two tracks on this album in my head stick out as the the, the two tracks because I'm I'm a drummer, and it just seems so strange to me that there was a conscious decision, whether on Ringo's part or John's or George's part to not play that hi-hat to keep time. And I was waiting for this remix to hear if, if there was a hi-hat recorded and just like stripped out of the mix, or if that was literally how it was recorded. And by the sound of this remix, it sounds like that was a choice made for both those first two songs. And I don't think you hear that. Uh, happening in, in any of the other tracks i just think that's such a weird and interesting and very unique decision that makes abbey road kind of a the abbey road type of sound i was actually you know if you ask ringo he'll always talk about like rain is his crowning achievement i think his work on this album is if you're going to make an argument that ringo's a good drummer and you know i will always make that argument his work on this this is i think the most creative drumming of the entire beatles career in one spot is condensed into this album. Cause like you said, there's, it's all like Tom driven on the first two songs. And then we flash forward a little bit later because has no drums on it at all. And then mm -hmm. you never give me your money goes like a minute and a half before the drums really kick in. So like there's these long gaps where there's no drums at all, you know, where I, I don't know. It's just uh, the drum work or lack of drum work on this whole album, I think is really inventive. Cause what, what band puts, a song and a half back to back with no drums in it. A rock, you know, what rock band does that? That's crazy. 
Mm-hmm. But it works really well, you know, and I think, uh, I think they made real good use of Ringo's strengths yeah. in this yeah. album. Like you, you talk about rain being kind of, uh, Ringo's, uh, I don't know if you'd call it masterpiece, but signature piece, definitely. Um, and you kind of use those pieces throughout this album and, and some interesting decisions, but uh, you, you also do hear, um, when you get to the bonus tracks that it's not completely all Ringo. Uh, making those decisions yeah, and yeah. i think that's kind of an interesting thing to I, I think it's safe to assume by this point unless your name is paul mccartney none of the decisions in the band are completely yours because <laughs> <laughs> <Right. laughs> i mean at some points he's telling you know uh even going back to the pepper remix he's telling john how to sing lucy in the sky with diamonds and he's telling ringo how to do the intro to maxwell Silverhammer and and all that and all and that kind of cracks me up too well we'll get to that when we get to maxwell's but yeah you're right about that but then you've also got three just right off the top of my head, three instances on this album of like legendary Ringo Starr lines. You've got the come together riff, you know, the do don't you know, that thing. And then you follow that up with his intro to something, and which is the next song, track two. And I think it's cool, like certain things, and I say this about Harrison as well, you can't cover come together without doing that drum line. It is a yeah. critical musical component of that song. Just like you can't do something without the little opening guitar lick because it is not just an opening guitar lick. It is a part of the melody, you know, or like in my life and things like that. Like these guys were so good at inserting musical ideas through their instruments that became as important as anything that John and Paul and, and later George were composing as songwriters. And you got back to back with Ringo. And I would argue that Ringo's drumming in this album in particular, maybe a little bit even on Let It Be, has to do with that damn extra third tom that he never yep. had in the first yep. few albums. He was really making use of it. And that. I like the tuning on his drums too. Uh, you know, he always tuned mm-hmm. low. And and I think this remix um, makes those, now I know why he tuned low. You know, because like in the in the early uh, mixes of the album, the toms to me kind of sound flat, like they don't reverberate at all, you know. And, you know, I mean, he also put like those cheesecloths or whatever on him to dampen it. But now I think we hear it the way it was heard in the studio and it sounds fantastic. You hear that air in the in the fills, you know, and, and like the opening of something you really hear the air of the movement of the drum hits. And uh, now I get it why he tuned them so low. Cause it's, it sounded cool in the studio. Yeah. I don't think he's ever sounded better yeah. uh, than on these, uh, at least these three remixes and, and on that yellow submarine soundtrack right. from years back. Yeah. I think they they definitely do uh, his drumming style justice, mixing it the way they have been, but the way that they originally did, I think, I think they really shortchanged him, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it was actual rules that EMI had imposed, like that the microphone had to be a certain distance away from the bass drum and all that kind of stuff. Same with the bass guitar. Like there were just certain rules that it took this long for the Beatles to prove that, you know, <laughs> that it should be done another way. That they weren't going to short out their equipment by playing right, too loud. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, something I think... Uh, 
where come together didn't sound much different, just better. Uh, something does sound incredible on this new remix, I think. Oh, I yeah, know, man. Uh, the stereo spread, especially during the chorus, the, uh, well, I would call the chorus, the, I don't want to leave her now part and the bridge section. Now, I don't know what version of the remix, uh, you, you listen to. So I know they've got the, uh, the 5.1 surround mix. They've got the, the vinyl, the CD, I downloaded the 9624 uh, high def uh-huh. version and just listened to it through my uh, computer, uh, not computer monitors. I have actual stereo speakers hooked up to it because that's the only uh, DAC I have is my computer. Right. <laughs> and just you, you sit right in the middle. You get that nice center channel, uh, phantom center channel, that nice sweet spot where it's, I, I think, in my opinion, is better than listening to headphones. And you just hear how much more broad that stereo spectrum is on the new mix. Uh, as when you do an AB comparison between this and the original mix, I think that they really opened that up, especially in the chorus and bridge section. And it's just, wow. I, you know, I always, always really liked something. I always thought it was a beautiful, beautiful song. And this, this is one of those remixes that just kind of brings you to tears. Oh, it was, it's incredible. I would love to hear it in 5.1. Um, when they did the pepper remix, I got to go listen a Sony theater with the Atmos surround sound, which is like, I think I counted at least 200 speakers in the theater um, that that you can see who knows how many are actually in there, but there's, it's, it's, it's like 5.1 on steroids and pepper sounded incredible. And I just kept wishing that they would do it again for, for Abbey road. And they never did. Cause this one, because there's so many layers to it and everything, I think this one just screams, for that 5.1, but I haven't heard that one yet. Yeah. And unfortunately I don't have a setup yeah, for that. Either. So I guess I'm just going to have to, we're going to have to have someone else do a podcast on the <laughs> 5.1. But I like that there's little things that I never noticed before that are much more present in these new mixes. And then I go back and, and listen to the, to the original mix and you hear them and, and there's, you can tell that like, there's like an organ in something. There's an organ before they get to just the staccato notes on the don't want to leave her now part. Uh, I assume it's Billy Preston. I didn't look to see who's playing organ on this. But they're, there's like they're doing these long tones underneath building up to that chorus that sound just beautiful on this remix that I had kind of lost because they were so buried in the original mix. And you hear them, but the little things like that, it's just – the amount of detail that went into these recordings is always, even all these years and after listening to them for thousands of times still amazes me sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the only thing I really wish on this remix is that they did bring the strings up just a little bit further, but I don't know. This is as close to perfect on, on this mix yeah. as you can get, yeah. I think. And then we go on to what has become one of the Beatles most hated songs. <laughs> fairly or not maxwell silver hammer now did you ever see that little cartoon that was drawn and i think it was just completely independently it was like a little uh video cartoon uh done to maxwell silver hammer and i gotta tell you whoever came up with that you'll have to look that up on youtube if you haven't seen it but <laughs> it really brought a different dimension to the song and i always thought it was just a complete you know kind of a they needed something to put on the album just to fill it up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, so this landed on there, but uh, whoever did the cartoon just gave me a new appreciation for this song. I, I didn't really like it as much as I do now, but I will tell you 
uh, <laughs> that if it wasn't on the album, I don't think I would miss it. It's one of those things like, yeah, I don't mind it, but I don't love it either. And I, I did an episode uh, last week on this podcast or on this song about Maxwell because it was hated by George. It was hated by John. It's now become hated, but it, it's like the black licorice of Beatles songs. You either love it or you hate it. There's no in between, it seems like anymore. And this remix, you know, all the podcasts I've listened to and the reviews I've read, really just people just hate this song. And I think this remix actually uh, makes it a little bit better because it's the, I think the hard, the hard pans of the original, you know, it's like you had the keyboard just hard on the left, you had uh, guitar hard on the right. I think eliminating some of that took out some of the hokiness because now it sounds like a rock band just doing a cheesy little song, but at the heart of it, it sounds like a rock band still where before it didn't really have that, that meat on it, you know? But then you still have that big Moog synth part that just kind of, I, I, well, what else do you do in that section? You know, you, you throw in like a guitar solo or something. I don't know. It's just, Eh, it's just one of those songs. <laughs> I was talking to my dad um, about, oh, I forget what song it was now. It was a Kinks song that we both love. And he had said, um, why is it that I love this song when the Kinks do it, but if Paul McCartney had done it, I would have hated it. And I think Maxwell Silverhammer is the same thing. And, and a reviewer actually said, Maxwell Silverhammer is the type of rock song that only Paul McCartney or Ray Davies could write. And I think if Ray had written it, people would be praising it as genius because it's this happy melody with real sinister lyrics and everything. But uh, who knows? I think it might suffer from sequencing. If Paul's... Yeah, and I actually... Yeah, I actually do bring that up when we get further into the track list. I do do think that some of these songs, at least on side A, could have uh, been flipped around yeah. a little bit. And this is if one Paul's of Paul's first song on the album was Oh Darling instead of Maxwell Silverhammer, it might change your perception yeah. of Maxwell's. But then if you were to swap those, you've got Maxwell and Octopus's Garden back to back. And that is a little cheese heavy, you know, so. Well, I mean, if you're going to have an entire section to skip, why don't just make them back to back? So that takes us to uh, song four, <clears throat> Oh Darling. Oh, geez. This mix. Yeah. Uh, yeah i was really hoping that while they were mixing this they would put an auto-tune to paul's bass line for this thing and it's just like or or whoever's playing it i don't know maybe paul was playing piano and john was playing bass but whoever was playing bass on this it was just i don't know if it's uh i've discussed this with you before and i don't know if it's that, that they're pulling the string too hard trying to get a real you know uh thud to the bass but it is it's always annoyed me. And for some reason, just because the mix is so much more clean now, it, it it's even more annoying that it's so either flat or sharp or wherever it is. It's just way it out is of tune. Paul on bass. And uh, I think it's, it's the way he either attacks the notes or some vibrato he puts on it because a lot of the, the, the weird notes on it do settle in pitch. And that's usually an indication that like he's, hitting the string bent and relaxing a little bit or pushing too hard. Cause sometimes if you push too hard on a bass string, it'll make it go a little bit sharp. But uh, yeah, there are some moments in this where it was like, Oh, that was close, but that's not, you know, and it's like, that was the right note. It's just 20 cents sharp, you know, (laughs) 
but his yeah. vocal yeah. I and mean, you can hear the same effect on the of uh, the bonus yeah. track too that he did that's it's on an earlier and take. i've yeah. heard recently um isolated bass tracks for this and he's doing a lot more on the bass than you really hear with the whole band like just the individual little things he's doing a lot of scooping and bending and and a lot of, you know, like boom, freedom, boom, you know, all that kind of stuff. And that I think adds to the, the uncertainty of the tone too. I mean, it's a great baseline. Yeah, it's, it's just, not, just, you know, not performed poorly. Um, <laughs> but his vocal on this, that first, Oh, darling, the intro. Oh my God. It sounds so good on this mix. Yeah. Yeah. I would actually argue that this is one of his best recorded vocal performances in the entire Beatles catalog, even with the gratuitous woos. Absolutely. You know, it's, uh, and it's one he worked on a long time, but I think George Martin had a way of recording his voice that he could never emulate. Like this one, he, he screams it, you know, he's just full belt and he's got the belt is coming from the right part of his voice. And then like two years later, when he's doing songs like Monkberry Moon Delight, where he's screaming that song, it's so- and it sounds great. I love that track. I like his voice on it, but it sounds like an affected yell where this just sounds like it's a gut yell, you know? There's some soul yeah. to it. A little bit of an emotion. Yeah, I think it. yeah. it's uh, George Martin knew how to push him or something or how to record him. I don't know if what it, what it is, but he sounds great on this one. Now, there is something that pops up on the remix of this song that continues to pop up through the album that actually irritates the heck out of me on the 2019 mix. And that's this is the first obvious uh, instance of Giles using some sort of echo doubling on the drums and it's distracting as hell. And I was doing an A-B comparison between um, the 2009 remaster of the original uh, CD uh, that was put out in 80, whatever it was, and this new mix. And the weird echo doubling on the drums only pops up at least to my ears on the 2019 mix. And it's not as severe here as it is on other tracks here, but it just, I don't know. Maybe I just focus on, on it because I'm always listening uh, to the drums first and then everything else second, but it takes away from this song, even though it's not my favorite, but it takes away from a lot of the really, uh, you know, the better songs that don't need that doubling. What I think is funny though, is that to me, a lot of, a lot of the vocals on it sound more dry than they originally were. So it's like you've added echo in one spot and then kind of stripped it back a little bit. Like, like this song in particular, that opening, Oh Darling sounds so just present and dry and without a lot of effects on it. You know, it's a lot more understated than it used to be. So it's weird that you kind of, adding and subtracting at the same time. Well, it does make me wonder if, if it's something that uh, Giles and company did because there was a, a lack of something with the original recording. You know, I would just assume that they would just bring the, uh, the mix up on the drums as opposed to doubling yeah. it, you know, was, was the original recording of the drums on the hard right channel. And that was his only way of spreading it across while also increasing the the volume of it. I don't know. I mean, I've, my little knowledge of mixing is nowhere near uh, where Giles is. So I have, I have no idea if it was an issue with original recording or if it was just a stylistic choice he made that he thought sounded good, at least to my ears, I don't think it sounds Or good. it could be something that they did 
1969. And because of the way it was mixed, it got, you know, lessened to our ears. And then by spreading it out, now it's more apparent to us than it was before. Because if, which is absolutely if, if that echo was committed to tape at the time of recording, which they did a lot, you know, nowadays they add the effects afterwards. But you listen to you listen right. to the outtakes and stuff, you know, on the anthology, bonus discs stuff on these releases. There's a lot of times where, like, you hear John's vocal on "Come Together." He was recording it with that slapback delay. You know, that was that was live. So that could be something that is just more prevalent now that they have separated out the tracks and and the stereo spreads a little cleaner and something that's just a side effect of uh of that who knows sometimes i think it works and sometimes it is a bit much depends yeah. on the song you know i think there's a time and a place i just didn't think that in the the songs on this album where it was used it didn't need it but you know that's and then just we me. get to uh song five octopus's garden ringo's input for this one i know you have some thoughts on this (laughs) boy do i (laughs) listen i know ringo needs to have his ringo track but could ringo not have written less ringo-y lyrics to george's (laughs) fun little rocker i mean okay here's an example of of uh my thoughts on this song okay there's there's a little tourist trap in wisconsin called house on the rock and it's basically it's a theme type of thing where you go and you stick your uh, your coin into this little uh, mechanical thing. And then you've got this whole stage of mechanical instruments that plays that belts out whatever song is programmed into it. Think of it as a very stripped down, like 1800s version of Chuck E. Cheese, right? With no animals playing. It's just literally machines playing. Well, <clears throat> Octopus's Garden is one of them. <laughs> and it beats the heck out of me why they chose Octopus's Garden, other than the fact that it's just like... It's a very childish, very fun kid, kitty friendly tune that I, I don't know. It's yeah, it's a very Ringo song, but with as mature as the rest of this album is, what the hell is this doing yeah, here? But with as mature <laughs> as Revolver was, they had Yellow Submarine on that. So it's like, it's, it's kind of unfair, but that's a Ringo no, that's song. What I'm saying. It's kind of unfair, <laughs> yeah, but he didn't write that one. So this is him saying, yeah, I know I did Yellow Submarine, but we're going to, I'm, my first major contribution to Abbey, my only contribution to Abbey Road is going to be another nautical song. <laughs> it's going to be the, the sequel to yeah, Yellow Yeah, it's Sunday, like, right. it's kind of unfair that, that he always got stuck with those nursery rhymes. Even Don't Pass Me By on the White Album, you know, even though it's about getting stood up because your girl got in a car accident, it's still kind <laughs> of a nursery rhyme type of melody and very one four five y you know. Boom, umcha, umcha, kind of stuff. But yeah, well, and then he didn't stray too far from that song style when he went no, solo either. No. So, <laughs> um, that said, as hokey as the l- lyrics are, band sounds good on it. It's a good, a good uh, band track. This, I think, some of George's that guitar intro on this song is, I think, overlooked. You know, when you see those things like the guitar magazines, greatest guitar solos and all that kind of stuff, that little four bar intro or whatever is so cool and difficult to play the way he plays it. And it's so smooth and effortless, you know, how how he voices that little line. I love that. Um, With this remix, I think some of his George's leads get buried, though. The little in between verse kind of, you know lead guitar licks, I think they kind of get buried in the mix. 
Yeah, and I, I agree with you on uh, the the opening uh, guitar part, and I, I try to imagine the song uh, played instrumental, and it and just you know just to listen to George's uh, mm-hmm. playing because it's you're right. I think it's it, it's probably overlooked because of the type of song that it is. I don't think it gets the respect it should get for the musicianship yeah. on it. And as far as the mix goes, um, Ringo's uh, vocals are clip like crazy, and it's I think it's from the original recording because i went back and did an ab comparison and his vocals clip on that too so i don't know that there was much that could be done about that but it's very obvious in this mix that it's was recorded a bit too loud this whole album was recorded loud there's some spots that the bass clips a little bit too um actually there's several spots where the bass clips but this whole album you can tell they were they were making a rock and roll album in the studio because it is just full blast all the way through yeah. Which takes us to I Want You, She's So Heavy, the the closer of side A. I like this song. I have always liked it. It's one of my f- favorites, but it's always been so hard to listen to because one of the things that I remembered most about this song, well, there are two things I remember most about the song. Number one is that uh, that long outro. I mean, I could sit on my acoustic guitar hours on end just playing that riff. But the other thing that I remember most about this song was how unlistenable it was because of the damn amp hiss. Yeah. Or what I assume is the amp hiss uh, at the beginning of the song. I don't know if it was an intentional addition to it to make it sound more like of a, a like a live your blues type mm-hmm. of jam or if it was just an effect of the technology at the time. But if you haven't heard the remix and if that has always bothered you, you'll be happy to know that that hiss is not yeah. in this mix. They were able to get rid of that. It's and I think that really adds to it. But again, this is another track that has that freaking uh, echoing of the drums that just distracts me. Yeah, I like it on this track. Yeah, you I do. like and I think this remix they the mix feels more open to me. And I've heard some people complain that I think they want it to sound like the band is, you know, on a tiny barroom stage doing, you know, this song. But I like the openness because it is such a, they left some air in their parts. You know, it's not Helter Skelter, you know, where it's all just a wall of sound. This one is kind of an atmospheric rock jam. And so I like the the air that they put in there. And, and I think that drum... um that reverby kind of drum sound that you're talking about, I think adds to that atmosphere of the track. Funny enough, even though that, that it does have that little uh, doubling effect to it, I still think that the drums are really buried on this track. And I think it could have uh, helped the punch of this song if it would have, if it were brought up just a I little bit I think there more. are certain tracks, and I know this from recording and, and all that kind of stuff, but I think there are certain tracks for whatever reason that you will never get as loud as they need to be, you know, like there's mm-hmm. just sometimes where it's like, I just cannot get this song. It demands to be 30 decibels louder, you know, <laughs> but I can only get it one, right. you know, it's, it's a, it's a weird thing. And I think this one, because it was recorded so loud in the, in the um, studio, I think it's hard to make that trans translation to, to tape. Yeah. Great album closer. Um, side or side closer rather side two opens with here comes the sun. And I think um, if you're talking about a way to close side a and a song to close open B great sequencing there. It's a, 
I want to use a great side closer. Here comes the sun as a great side opener. But I also think this is one of those cases where hearing it on CD without having to turn over the vinyl, this is one of the most genius sequencing moves in the whole Beatles catalog. Ending so abruptly on that just wall of guitars and white noise into the quiet acoustic guitar of Here Comes the Sun is such a one-two punch to me. I love that moment of the CD when you're listening to the whole album. I kind of wish on the CD version that they would have closed that gap a little mm-hmm. bit more. I, I wish it was just like straight yeah. into it, almost like the rest of the the, the medley tracks on side B. Um, but I grew up without it, so it doesn't bother me as much. But I thought that you know, I always thought it would be kind of fun if that gap were completely closed. As far as this mix goes, I think this is the absolute best remix on the entire album, and I just I just sat there and listened to it. I even got. Uh, Amy down to listen to the mix and she was just like I want to hear this I, again uh, <laughs> you know because it's just done I wrote in well. my notes it's a highlight of the album and it's a highlight of the remix I listened to it because they released that video on YouTube an official video for Here Comes the Sun I think like a week before the album actually came out and I probably watched that video 10 times in that first day and but the first time I, I, I might might I started tearing up a little bit in the first 20 seconds of this recording. When you hear those background vocals kick in uh, in the very beginning, you know, when he goes, it's all right. And he's got the, the, I think there's two vocal parts above him. Oh man, it just sounds incredible. And it already sounded great. It's like every song on this album already sounded good, but this one, it's just a whole nother level now and a whole new like emotional depth to the song. It does make me wonder in which order uh, they attacked this uh, remix album, because just by how amazing this remix sounds, as opposed to my ears anyway, how I want you came off. Now, obviously, much different recording techniques were used for both tracks. Um, They were they may have even been in completely different spaces recording both songs. So maybe the remix has nothing to do with it. But I just it just feels like to me if this was the, the last one they attacked on their remix sheet and they got it right at the end or did they do this one first and we're like we're good this is how we're going to remix the entire album and and then things just fell apart from there I, I don't know or did they do it you know track by track as it's listed on the album either way this came out as beautiful as you could possibly want uh any of the songs to sound I don't think that they've mixed any Beatles track better than this one and I'm including everything on Sgt. Pepper's and White Album this is this is the bar as far as the 50th anniversary re- uh, remixes go, as far as absolutely. I'm concerned. And like everything about it, the, the, the vocals, the guitar work, you can hear him doing things on the acoustic guitar that give you a new appreciation for what he's doing. It's not as simple as it sounds at first take, but now you hear it, you know, those, those little like eighth note um, drones that he's doing underneath the lead line on the acoustic are more prevalent now and everything. It just sounds like it, it sounds like it was recorded yesterday. The guitars are so crisp and the vocals are so clear. It sounds like it was a brand new recording. Well, and that's exactly what I'm looking for with these anniversary remixes. You know, when uh, Pepper was re-released uh, a couple years back, that to me was a revelation. Like this is what this could sound like if the Beatles were in their twenties recording this in 2016 right. and 17. So that's kind of where this whole line of remix albums are kind of set up. They're kind of basing um, 
that approach on what they did with Sergeant Pepper. And, and to me, if they don't meet that, then to me, they're not doing it right. Well, with Here Comes the Sun, they knocked that yeah. out of the park. I, uh, I mean, for instance, in the original mix, so you got George's lead vocal track is pushed all the way to the right yeah. channel, which for, you know, for 50 years might have been just fine. But when you hear it mixed in this way, it's like, why wasn't it always in the center? Why wasn't George singing at you, like in front of your face instead of off to the well, side? It's, it's hard to believe that there was ever a time when vocals, bass, guitar, or drums were ever hard panned to one side of the spectrum, you know, because it's just not how it's done nowadays. You know, especially like they would put Ringo's entire drum kit because he wasn't getting, uh, indiv- I think Abbey Road was the first album where they were actually individually tracking certain drums because they had expanded to 16 track, I believe, because they did eight track for White Album. And I think Abbey Road was 16. Um, so like he was all, all his drums were mixed onto one track and then panned hard left or whatever with Paul's bass hard right. It's like, there's not a recording engineer on the planet nowadays that would do that you know but i think a lot of that kind of boils down to how things were mixed in mono i think that's what their technique was is you know all that stuff on one side all the other stuff over here we'll combine the two you know and i think abbey road is one of the pioneering albums in stereo mixing um i can't think of uh i can't think of another band who had an album earlier than that that uh, did a better job of mixing in stereo. No, than this was one. definitely like they'd had a couple years to tinker with it, and now they've kind of perfected it to that point. And then you hear bands like Pink Floyd, who listened to this album and went, "That's it. That's our sound for the next decade." And and you know, and, yeah. and then took it to that next level because there's a lot of elements on Abbey Road that are straight up, uh, Dark Side of the Moon, Wish You Were Here era things. You know that that would be later on. And then we go from Here Comes the Sun, which I guess is technically the start of the medley um, because it's side B. But I always consider the start of the medley to actually be track eight because. And uh, man, I'm trying to remember what their their take on that was on the what they would call the long one if that was included in there or not. But to me, the medley doesn't start until um, after Sun King. That's how I always envisioned it. Yeah, but you never give me your money bleeds into Sun King with those crickets and the whatever that rattling noise is. Yeah, I suppose. But I don't know. I've got my own thoughts on Sun King. But if we're talking about Because, that was a track that um, I never really paid much attention to early on. um, But it really made an impact when uh, they remixed it for uh, their Vegas show Love. And it was like a brand new experience to me. And I, I, I had a new appreciation for it um, after that point. And I think, you know, I got a little bit spoiled listening to it at the show because, you know, you want to talk about your Dolby Atmos uh, with 200 speakers, that show in Vegas, it was like every seat had its own yeah. little speaker, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it was, it was just something different. Now you do also uh, have the unfortunate um experience of hearing just how out of tune all four of them are singing together (laughs) on a track like this but it's still a good you know uh extra beatles track i don't know how seriously i take this song but i mean it's it's a nice listen it's one of those that i don't go to individually but coming out of here comes the sun and and amping up for this second half of the album i think it fits contextually pretty well 
then mm-hmm. it goes into You Never Give Me Your Money, which is you were talking about was Here Comes the Sun, the first remix or the last. And I think it was probably the first because You Never Give Me Your Money, this remix to me sounds like they were running out of time. And this was the only one they had left because <laughs> this is to me uh, the low light of the whole album. This is the one track on here actually, that I think suffers from this remix. I actually put in my notes that this sounded like they didn't do too much to the mix other than slightly broadening the stereo but some, field. But somehow it feels like it's lacking some of the energy uh, of the original. And the original had weird stereo spectrum too. But like when they get to the out of college money spent, they're hard panning in this one. And it's just, it's too open for this tune. And to me, it sounds like uh, a Paul solo record, like, um, like 1973, 74 era Paul, you know, or maybe even a little earlier, but like, it doesn't feel like it's the band playing it. This feels like it's, uh, Paul just sitting in a studio doing his own overdubs and all that kind of stuff. But there's some weird lack of energy on this one that it's just, this one is hard for me. This is not going to be the definitive mix if I'm making a, you know, a playlist on Spotify or something for me. Well, who knows? Maybe Paul was sitting in the uh, mix studio with uh, Giles giving him direction. That's that's how how Paul wanted it. And then uh, (laughs) this, that um, leads into Sun King, which I think uh, they are uh, sympathetic songs to one another that bleed into each other, but I guess we disagree on the start of the medley. So, <laughs> well, it's just always I, I always thought of Sun King as a, a throwaway track, and while it might they may bleed in, uh, you know, uh, you never give me your money may bleed into Sun King a little bit, and I think you kind of hear with their um, the bonus tracks that uh, it bled a little bit differently than the finished mm-hmm. product. Um, and that the next song, um, like kicks off immediately at the end of Sun King. I still don't in my head picture this as part of that medley. Cause if I were to build this medley myself, I would get rid of Sun King completely. This wouldn't even be part of it. It's not that I don't necessarily like the track. It just does, doesn't seem like it does. It adds anything to the overall album. As a track, I actually like it a lot. And going back to your Vegas thing. Before the show, they had they would be playing like real soft incidental music, and it was the instrumental tracks. You know, they stripped the vocals out of a bunch of tracks and were just playing the band. Um, and I remember Sun King sitting in that theater, and the track for Sun King came on, and I was like, you know, listening to it, you know, over the crowd noise and everything. And it just really struck me. The musicianship on it, I think, is beautiful. And this is one of them that you definitely hear a Pink Floyd influence. Um, but I think where it suffers is that musically, it's a little bit too close to Because, which we just heard four minutes ago. And lyrically, it's either ridiculous or here comes the sun. I mean, it starts with the same lines. You know, so it's like on one hand, maybe it's, you know, for like continuity reasons, it makes sense. But I can see where this song feels like a throwaway to you because it's like, it's not really very different from what we've heard before. Well, that and it doesn't help that the harmonizing at the at the end is just god awful. It's, <laughs> it's really bad. So 
that's Sun King. And then it goes right in, like you said, to Mean Mr. Mustard, which I, if you listen, I didn't realize this before, but just looking at the um, the bonus material on this, this was recorded together. Because like you look at the bonus material and it's like, take 27 of Sun King goes right in a take 27 of Mean Mr. Mustard. It was recorded as one piece. Um, and a couple of these were Polythene Pam was recorded with She Coming Through the Bathroom Window, which you can hear that because it's the same instrumentation and everything. But Mean Mr. Mustard has always been one of my favorite songs on the album. Yeah, I think so. I feel the same way. And I have always liked um, Here Comes the Sun and then from this point on uh, all the way through the end of the album. And I would argue that the B-side of Abbey Road is the best B-side of any album in in history of any type of music. And this is part of the reason why. And I, the medley here, you could listen to each track individually and you'd still get a good sense of um, uh, how good mm-hmm. the song is. And you would definitely get a much better sense of um, Paul's vision for uh, a medley. And I think Paul's affinity for medleys really shines on this. You know, he explores that again in the future in his solo albums yeah. and things like that too. But I think this is where it's done the best, where it's not just Paul. It's also, you know, John thrown in Polythene Pam uh, in the mix. And uh, even when things fall apart, when you find out where Her Majesty is supposed to be in this lineup, you know, it still isn't that bad. I'm glad they cut Her Majesty out Me in too. the lineup originally, but but it's still, it seems so seamless as you keep going through each track, each track, and none of them are bad. That's the thing. It's like you wonder, you know, these are like little throwaways that they they hadn't finished, they hadn't fleshed out for the most part. Um, and it's like, well, Mean Mr. Mustard was like, needed a bridge and a guitar solo, and you could have made a real song out of it. It's like, and I'm always amazed um, a couple of weeks ago when I did the show on Andrew Bird Can Sing. You know, John said that was a throwaway song and, and he kind of dismissed it. And it's like, that shows you the the genius of these guys that Andrew Bird can sing. One of the best songs on one of their best albums was a throwaway. And it was like, it's the kind of song that any other musician would be like, I wish I could write a song that good. It's kind of the same thing here. Like they're just throwing away these songs, not even trying to make them into full three minute pieces. And it's like, I mean, Mr. Mustard's well, got a go. great groove and it's got a cool chord changes and that little... You know, everything about it is kind of cool and it's a good story song, which John didn't write a ton of those. You know, it's it's a rare instance of John writing a song that wasn't in the first person narrative. Um, and it's like, what would have happened if they would have fleshed out Mustard and Polythene Pam and, and made them into full songs? You know, it's like, I don't know. I wish I had their throwaways in me. <laughs> Well, he, well, that's just it. It's like one person's trash is another person's treasure. Yeah, well, there exactly. You <laughs> <laughs> so then it goes into Polythene Pam, which you had mentioned, the, Her Majesty, for those who don't know, which I imagine is nobody who's listening to this podcast. Her Majesty, which is used as a bonus, uh, not a bonus, a hidden track at the end of the album, um, was supposed to go in between me and Mr. Mustard and Polythene Pam, which is... A smart, like you said, it was good that they cut it. That would have been such a momentum killer. But uh, we go into Polythene Pam. Good rocker. Nice and short. I don't, you know, you mentioned that, you know, what would happen if they would have fleshed it out. I don't know that uh, 
I don't know if I would have wanted to hear this one longer than it was. It's it, you know it's it it's it serves its purpose in the middle of the medley. I think it's got a good guitar solo in it, and I'm glad that uh, they changed the uh, the lyric to Pam from Shelley because I think it they they created a, a narrative with uh, Pam in the middle of this. In medley, me, Mister Mustard, you, know? you mean? So it was yep. it was originally his sister Shelley or Shirley or whatever. Oh right, right, right. Yep, um, yep. You're right. And uh, I think it was a smart decision. You know, if, if the next song is going to eventually be Polythene Pam, then changing My Sister Shelley to Pam, well, then we're talking about, okay, well, this is the Pam we right. were just talking about. And I just found out, I didn't know this until a couple of weeks ago, that Mean Mr. Mustard is actually based on a real person. Yeah, he read, oh, yeah? there was a magazine or newspaper article talking about this guy named must Mr. Mustard. And, uh, and a lot of this stuff was true that he was like this cheap, you know, uh, I mean, he didn't stick 10 Bob notes up his nose, but, <laughs> but a lot of the, a lot of the narrative came right from that magazine article that John read. And he didn't become Colonel Mustard no, from I don't Clue. Think so. No. <laughs> and then, um, Polythene Pam leads seamlessly into the next song. Cause they were recorded as one piece. Uh, she came in through the bathroom window. I don't know what else you can say about it. I was just, uh, you know, it, just like the other two, just a real, well, this one's a this little one bit This one feels like a full feel, song. Yeah. And actually like, but it works. Joe Cocker did a version of it. Like I had a hit single with it years later. I think anyone could have had a hit single with just about anything the Beatles wrote. Uh, you could have, you could probably take, uh, you know, Octopus's Garden and Corn could do a cover of it and get a hit single out of it somehow. Corn, so. if you're listening. <laughs> Here you I go. Think, I think the single. new remix of this song, I've always liked this tune and um, I like this version. I like the anthology version where they were doing it a little slower and bluesier, um, which I think was probably from the Get Back sessions. But this new remix with the way the ba- the bass is driving on this and there's some cool drum work. This song rocks a lot harder than I had originally given it credit for. Like there's a groove and a swing to this tune that's really cool. Yeah, and the only drawback to this remix to me again and I'm I'm going to sound like a broken record the the, the the drum track doubling for whatever reason appears on Bathroom Window but not on the other two. So I don't know if that was, uh, you know, an original recording decision or if that's something that Giles decided to throw in there to kind of beef up the drum track. I don't know. That's the only negative I had on the remix of that little medley piece. And then we go into what I consider a second movement of the uh, medley because there is a gap between she came in through the bathroom window and golden slumbers. It's a clean break. So this, I, I consider this a, uh, Movement two of the medley to close out the album. We get into Golden Slumbers. Beautiful song. Beautiful remix, I think. Yeah, and I, I again, did the A-B comparison, and it, it does retain a lot of the yeah. original mix. And you might be right. Maybe, you know, a lot of this, uh, uh, the stuff that appears on side B, maybe he just didn't do a lot of the polish and scrub and remixing that maybe was afforded to the opening side of the album but maybe it didn't need it maybe that's why we're not hearing as much done to it because maybe the original was just yeah. that good this one i just thought of this today listening to it you know doing my own ab as we were getting ready to record and people always make fun of paul's screaming this is a lullaby 
and they make fun of Paul screaming the, I guess you'd call it the bridge or the chorus or whatever. Um, like there's a meme on the internet about it, you know. I'm going to give Paul a free pass. For starters, it's a it's a great song. It's a phenomenal vocal. I like the sound of his voice on it, even if it doesn't fit for a lullaby. But a couple measures before Paul does that scream, Ringo hits his toms. He comes in with those toms, and he beats the living snot out of those toms. It's the hardest he hits anything yeah. this entire album. He's like, dun, 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 dun. You know? <laughs> so I'm going to give Paul a free pass on this. He was just responding to... Uh, you know, he got built up by Ringo's hits and then George Martin counters it with like the orchestration swells and you've got these low trombone notes and the horns and everything, you know, kind of full, uh, full steam ahead on the uh, orchestration, which is beautiful on this remix. That does seem a little bit pushed up um, Martin's orchestrations on this one. Yeah, and if you were sleeping for whatever reason, you were definitely going to wake up yeah. <laughs> yeah. by the time Carry That Weight came through. And then Carry the Weight comes up next, and um, it is Carry That Weight. Yeah, I mean, it's just a piece of that part of the medley. It's If you're going to dissect it as its own track, uh, there's not much really no. to say about it, other than that it, uh, it ties in little bits and pieces uh, from earlier on in the album, which I thought was okay. kind of a cool so, uh, nod. Exactly. So it what does it tie in? It brings back a reprisal of "You Never Give Me Your Money," which yep. Oh no, you you didn't think that was part of the medley, but it's it's actually quoted within the melody. So that would I would I would put I submit to you, sir, in my argument that it is part of the melody or medley because it it opens and is now closing the medley in a lot of ways. Well, if you are to believe uh, the Beatles' original take on this whole side of the album, it is part of the medley. But I think the way that it was finished, I think that it was used more as a callback and that this was more of a second medley, that this was uh, it was shaped into more of uh, their their farewell track. Well, I mean, if you're going to take the Beatles' word for it, Here Comes the Sun is part of the medley, too. And I don't think anybody considers that part of the medley. So. What do they know about their intent? Know. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Who are they? Yeah. Experts on their own and then, material? So that goes, I think, for the record, I think the You Never Give Me Your Money reprise in Carry That Weight actually sounds better than the track itself does uh, earlier in this on this side. But that's just me. And then we get to the end. And the end. Yeah. Now... I wonder if that was done on purpose. I mean, because obviously they knew this was going to be it, you know, but did Paul sit down and saying, I need to write a track called The End? Um, here's the thing. Here's the thing. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen this because um, it just came out recently. There's a recording of three of the Beatles at an Apple um, meeting and they recorded it because Ringo was off filming a movie, I think. And so it's committed to tape and they're, this is post Abbey Road. And it's John, Paul, and George sitting around the table talking about their next album. And John is suggesting that that John, Paul, and George each get four songs, and then Ringo can have two if he wants them. And that because George's songwriting is getting so good that he should get equal footing with the, the other two. And then they make fun of Maxwell's Silver Hammer a little bit, and Paul gets pissy about that. But that whole, that whole <laughs> narrative that they knew Abbey Road was going to be their, their last one, that narrative that has sustained for 50 years 
is kind of out the window because they were actually planning a follow-up album after this. Huh. I think you you would think that I, I would it, have known it, that. it just <laughs> this this recording had just surfaced within the last couple months. Um, huh. but uh, I think they wrote the end because the medley was such a conscious mapped out thing. I think it's, it's more about the medley and ending the album, but it sounds good on here. Um, they did some panning on the guitar solos to make it a little bit more clear who's playing what, if in case you are yeah. so deaf that you can't tell that that's three different guitars playing. Cause it's, it's such three <laughs> completely distinctly different styles and tones and all that. But it is Paul and then George and then John. And Paul's on the left. George is on the right. John is in the center. Um, I think... Go ahead. I think... Well, go ahead. <laughs> I think George shines on these solos. And it shows how, while the other two were great guitar players, are great guitar players, were great guitar players, George had a touch and a musicality that the other two just could not touch. If you listen to these three solos and just the finesse of how he bends notes and phrase and his phrasing and, and all that kind of stuff, he was at another level than the other two guitar wise. Absolutely. I don't think there's any question where, whereas uh, Paul may have come across as the more well-rounded musician and songwriter. I, to my ears and eyes, I think George actually was the better uh, songwriter and performer and musician. I don't know what he was like on the drums, but it couldn't have been worse than Paul. Okay. I'm <laughs> so uh, tired of this, this whole, uh, Paul's such a great drummer. Paul is not a better drummer than I am. And I'm a guitar player. <laughs> is he, Paul's is he not adequate? That good. No, yes. he's not. Is he serviceable? Yes. Is he good enough for his recordings? Yes. Has he ever been called into somebody else's recordings to be the George never called him to come play on one of his albums on drums. John never called him. They all called Ringo. You know, it's like he's not a drummer by any stretch of the imagination. And you listen to the songs he did drum on back in the USSR. Go listen to the isolated drum tracks on that. That's two different drums being played. Like, so he had to double track it and, and I'm still not convinced that Ringo didn't go back and overdub some of his own fills onto it. But like, yeah, Paul is an overrated drummer and I love Paul. You all know that, but I, he's an overrated drummer. (laughs) Well, and as I was learning more about the Beatles, as I was growing up, it actually shocked me to hear that, uh, he had contributed some drum Mm -hmm. parts, um, like on Ballad of uh, John and Yoko. I'm like, that's paul but then the more i listen to it it's like yeah that is definitely not ringo so if it's paul the boy he's not that good so and speaking of drumming you know that uh the famous ringo uh solo on this uh track uh on the end um i, I love the the use of the, the the stereo field in this mix and you talk about how they separated the three guitar solo parts left right and center i think they did a real good job of panning ringo's uh, yeah, the solo sounds good because uh Oh yeah, and that that was the very first drum solo I ever learned how to play. Was this uh, I'm actually, drum solo? I'm uh, actually teaching us. I have a, a drum student right now that I'm teaching um, this solo because he's working through a book of Beatles drum transcriptions, and uh, he's been working on this one for about a month now. And he's having a, as a right-handed drummer, he's having a real hard time with this drum because it's it leads from the bottom tom, and he leads with his left hand, but he, it's 
you know, he's hitting the bottom tom, the floor toms first, and then going up to the left, which is like tricky on a right-handed player, you know. But he's doing all right. It is. It it's just like with uh, come together. Unless you're really paying attention to which toms are actually being being hit first, you have to remember Ringo was actually left-handed playing a right-handed drum kit, so he would actually play his toms kind of uh, backwards to what a right-handed drummer might play. So that yeah, you're right. He he'd go from starting on his left hand on the hi hat on t t t instead of the right hand, you know, because I would always start with my right hand and I'd hit the wrong yeah. tom because, you know, as I'm moving around the kit, that's the same thing with uh, the drum solo at the end here, you know, it, it, having to learn that playing it the Ringo way, which is the right way is a little bit more difficult than you might think. It sounds like it's a real, you know, simple. It's all 16th, 16th, almost every rhythm in there is the same rhythm, but. Yeah, but it's not actually as simple no. as it sounds. I know I give Ringo a lot of, of of crap, but you know, if you really listen to what he's actually doing, you know, if you're a right-handed drummer, try sitting down and playing. And then try doing, you know, it's it's not. And, and then keeping that bass pedal going for quarter notes for however many bars that is, that's a marathon right there. You know, <laughs> like it's it's not. Uh, yeah, like you said, it's deceptively difficult. And I I, I read that it, they tricked him into doing it. That wasn't it because they it was uh, just a at least back in that time you know they thought that left-handed drummers were too weird to be broadcast on TV. Well, or something and then like, like that. he didn't want to do the solo because he hated drum solos, and so the Beatles had recorded guitar solos over it, which you can hear on the anthology version. I don't know why they didn't include it uh, on this release, but the guitar solos start earlier, and he was doing the solo basically as fills is what I've, I've heard. I don't know how true it is. And then they stripped the guitars back and left it as a, as a drum solo. So it was intended to be a buildup, a buildup into that next section, but he was supposed to have had a band with them. Huh? Very Which might be why he's doing no. the bass drum, just four on the floor the whole time. Well, whatever yeah, happened, it's a, it works. it's a cool, it's a cool <laughs> end of the song. And then we get, you know, three cool solos that really highlight the different styles of the three guitar players. And then uh, a pretty little coda at the end, the love you take. And, uh, and then we're done. Or are we? Cause like <laughs> 10 or 15 <laughs> seconds later, we get her majesty, which is uh, a missing, a throwaway track, that, you know, from earlier in the mix that they didn't use. And it is. Well, you know, they, they recorded the thing. They produced it. You, you know, you don't want to waste anything. Yeah. You just throw it on there somewhere. I love. So the bonus <laughs> material has three different takes of this song, which all sound identical. <laughs> it's like it's. I think though, upon listening, and I've heard, I've heard that uh, that uh, take one through three a uh, number of times. I think they use take three. To my ears, that sounds identical to what's on. I haven't the album. listened to that closely. But- I. Th- but I mean, he just, I mean, it's a short, what, yeah. 17 second song. I mean, he hammered that out in three takes. I mean, I don't think you really needed to spend more time on it than that, but. Uh, it's a pretty, it's a pretty little. But melody. I do wonder how many people in the day. Yeah. Well, I wonder how many people in the day actually, you know, picked up the needle off the record before even hitting Her Majesty. Because I, if I'm not mistaken, Her Majesty, is it listed on the track list on the original you know, I pressings? Don't, I don't remember. I know it was on the CDs, but I don't remember if it was on the uh, album or not. 
Because we had the um, we had uh, the not the original pressing. We had the um, repressing, uh, like nineteen seventies repressing, uh-huh. uh, U.S. repressing. We also had the um, uh, uh, Mobile Fidelity original master uh, pressing as well. And I know that was listed on the back of that one because I uh, got in trouble for handling that album <laughs> when I was a kid. Don't touch the original master. <laughs> I'm trying to see. Well. Did the back is that original? I'm I'm looking it up for us here. If this is the original, if this is what it says it is, it is not listed. So okay. if this is actually the original British pressing, which it says it is, um, it stops at the end. So it could have been a nice surprise for well, if you want to call it a nice surprise, but like it's a nice oh, little song. It's got pretty melody and. Um, it's a jarring surprise because it starts with that big strum chord that was supposed to be the last chord of mustard. So it kind of jumps out at you too. They should have, they should have done like a, what they did on pepper and had it as the fade out groove and just had it, it just had a vamp the, in the, the whole time. Ramp, yeah. <laughs> right. Complete with the yeah. dog whistle, you know, and then that's the album. <laughs> Um, that's Abbey Road, a masterpiece. I think I, I truly believe this is, like I said, I have a favorite album for many reasons, and this is not usually the favorite album, but it is one that I will listen to a lot and I go back to a lot. And like we said, it was one that start to finish might be their best listen from, from top to bottom, in my opinion. And I think if you're talking about uh, just classic rock albums in general, this is a must have in the catalog. I think uh, this and Sgt. Pepper and Pet Sounds. And I mean, you can even include uh, Led Zeppelin II as a great classic rock album in that area, uh, in that time frame. But uh, if you don't have this in your classic rock collection, uh, you're really missing out. I think this is... This didn't just define uh, a new period in music because this was the end of the, you know, um, the the hippie love movement. I mean, 69 is the year that rock died and this is um, the, the year that this album came out. And this really showed a new uh, turn into prog rock. I think this there's there's some prog oh, rock totally. elements to this that there were prog rock elements uh, in White Album and Sgt. Pepper, too. But I think to your point earlier about, you know, Pink Floyd kind of taking Abbey Road and uh, putting their little spin on it, basically. I don't know that you would have, you know, Pink Floyd as we know them without an album like Abbey Road. No, there's there's too much. uh, Dave Gilmore in particular pulled way too much influence from this album to to say that he would have been the same without it. You know, he would have just probably been a blues guitar player without – Without this, I mean everything from the way they pick their chords, like in uh, Sun King and and the guitar leads and a lot of this stuff is, and then the the, the use of the Moog synthesizer, where the Beatles used it very sparingly and and I think to a real tasteful level, other prog rock bands that were to follow are going to use it and abuse it, you know. But this was really the first album, mainstream album, to utilize that as an instrument, you know. And it's all over the place. 
Now, have you heard any of the bonus tracks to this? Yeah, uh, I have a, there's a few highlights on it. But what what did what did you want to chat about? Well, I was I was kind of curious what you thought of the uh, home demo of Goodbye, and whether you thought this had a place no. on Abbey Road. No, no place at all. So not even replacing no. Octopus's Garden. No the thing with that that <laughs> song. I mean, he wrote it for somebody else. Um. So who mm-hmm. knows if if they would have recorded it? Maybe they would have taken it down into a male, you know, a male appropriate key because he's singing it in that falsetto because he's written it for a woman. Um, right. But to me, it's it sounds a little bit too like mid sixties English pop, and this is like a late sixties rock and roll album. You know, like maybe it could have fit in on the White Album better. But yeah, I don't. I don't hear it as an Abbey Road track at all. Why do you? Um, it's it's different mm-hmm. than everything else, but I think it might have, if it were fleshed out a little bit more and had more of a Beatles spin on it, than you know him writing for somebody else. Kind of like with uh oh oh what's the one that he gave to Badfinger? Um, come and get it right. Which, oddly enough, I don't know why they included it on this, because was this not already yeah, on and I, Anthology? It's, I didn't three? look, but I think it's the same exact demo, isn't it? Like, it sounds the same to me. I think it is. Um, that right. song, they could have replaced Maxwell Silverhammer with Come and Get It, and that side A would have been, as good as it is now, side A would have been killed if Maxwell's was replaced with the Beatles doing Come and Get It. And I always thought that was a Beatles yeah. song anyway, when, uh, because I'm only familiar with the Badfinger version up until, you know, I finally heard, you know, Paul's demo of it. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> that could have gone there. And um, I don't know. It, I I don't know why we're seeing like um, Old Brown Shoe and John and Yoko here, because I didn't really know that those were uh, being recorded around the same time. But it's it's kind of interesting. Well, they, uh, they did that hear, with some of the others, too, because like there's strawberry fields and penny lane outtakes on the pepper remix it's like if they were in that same session period but then why not include yeah. remixed versions of i would love to hear a remix of old brown shoe you know <laughs> so why mm-hmm. include all the demoing and and outtakes and stuff and not include the actual tune and I I love old brown oh, shoe. I, 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 I love, love that it. song, and it and that demo is confir- that demo is confirmation that George Harrison did in fact say yeah, short heard yeah. girl, not haired. <laughs> that was not a recording mistake. That's just how he pronounced things. I just uh, oh, George. I, that one. I, I've already done the episode on that, but uh, it's got one of his best guitar solos on it. That that second yeah. guitar solo is that one of his first? Uh, is that one of his first uses of the slide? It's not slide on it. No. The it's first, the slide. only, the only Beatle track that's got slide guitar on it is uh, "For You Blue," and it's John playing it. George, no George has said, and I've, huh. I've thought I've heard it in other places too. Like, I mean, it's on Strawberry Fields, but he's just sliding down the guitar neck. He's not playing a solo with it. But uh, yeah, he said he never touched a slide till he went on tour with Delaney and Bonnie, and that was late '69, early '70, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah, I always assumed there was a slide in there somewhere. Just don't wow. Okay. 
But I like um, the, on the bonus material. I like the "I want you" outtake when they get the noise complaint from whoever's in the studio next door. And yeah, like, uh, you got to turn it down. And John's like, "Who else is here this late at night?" Like, you know? <laughs> right, right. And Paul's saying this is a lousy yeah. district, and yeah. <laughs> and then they were like, "We'll do one more full blast, and uh, then we'll see if we can do it quiet." And then uh, I like uh, the on the outtake for the end. The first 30 seconds or so is just studio noise. You know, that I think one of them's talking yeah. back and forth at the board and then you hear Paul and Ringo doing something and George is tinkering on the guitar and you can tell just from this studio noise how loud that room was. Like you can tell by the way yeah. the guitar sounds that it's like they've got that amp cranked to eight or nine, you know, and it's it's pretty loud. I'm going to guess there was hardly any kind of instrument isolation I, in that it'd room be, at all. It'd be hard to at that volume. Yeah. And then... Uh, I do like on the Golden Slumbers uh, outtakes, the 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 little uh, yeah. fool on the hill bit yeah. to start things off. And it just... It, the first time I heard that, it really made me wonder uh, how long it had been since he'd actually played that. Because uh, you tend to forget. Now, we talk about how the Beatles, you know, really only have like a seven-year uh, commercial recording history. They didn't play live <laughs> for a few years. And at the time, it seemed like, well, who does that? Who doesn't play live? You know, and Fool on the Hill wasn't really something that they ever played live. So hearing that little bit right before they go into their Golden Slumber Steak was just kind of a cool moment. Like, I bet he hasn't Since they recorded that it, probably. While, you know? <laughs> yeah. I like yeah. Uh, on the Because bonus, it's just the instrumental. And you can hear Ringo maybe being the first click track. You can hear him like clapping or, or yeah. I can't tell if he's clapping or snapping, but it's not a, it's not a metronome. Cause you hear him. Sometimes he's just doing this and then sometimes he's subdividing, you know, but like he's, he is, I mean, his temp, his timing, they say he was, every take was the same tempo. They said he had excellent tempo ear, but he's a, essentially the first click track. Cause they weren't doing that back in the day. Yeah, and you can tell it wasn't done live. I think they had to they they'd done that yeah, as its own track like it. first because it just kept, it keeps playing yeah. through to the end. And I think it was more of a maybe that's what it is, than yeah. anything else because I'm imagining it. Um, and I like the orchestral stuff that they included uh, with uh, something and uh, here comes a, or not some uh, yeah something and the the medley, yeah, Golden Slumbers. Yeah, I think the. That version, the strings only version of something, it's 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 a completely different song when you just hear the strings. It really drives home really just how amazing mm-hmm. that song is. Um, that you can listen to just the strings or you can listen to the whole thing uh together and you have two completely different experiences, but they're both great experiences. Now, as far as the strings only on Golden Slumbers, I'm not sure if that isolated track really revealed no. anything new. It's it's pretty there there it's pretty to listen to, but there are too many gaps in that medley where there's not orchestral stuff going on. But like the something one almost stands on its own as as its own individual piece, you know. And then I never realized I'd always heard um in the in the bridge where he's doing the uh you're asking me, will my love grow? And you hear the the plunks. I always, for for the life of me, yeah. thought that was like a ukulele or banjo string. I never realized that was the pizzicato strings from the orchestra. I always thought oh, that yeah. was yeah. something that the the band had done in studio. So that was cool. Yeah. Wrong. Yeah. You were wrong. <laughs> Thank you to Giles Martin for, for revealing so, that. Because I really like that orchest- orchest- orchestral 
backdrop to they've got that one. Now that is definitely something to hit. Uh, I mean, if if I have any complaints on how he mixed the band in any parts, I think what he's always been really good at, both he and and uh, his dad, or were the uh, the strings and brass, the, you know, the orchestral mm-hmm. pieces. Oh man, the recording and mixing of that is just amazing. Pretty good band. They, uh, they yeah, they're right. they're up there. You know, no, well, didn't make a lot of money, <laughs> but you know, that's all right. <laughs> So now overall, Tony, what when you're comparing this remix to the previous two remixes, where would you rank this on those three Third. albums that are out so far? I I would agree. Now, why would you personally? Uh, I think rank Pepper's this? first because that one was just a revelatory remix. Because the original stereo mix of Pepper is so bad by today's standards. Uh, and Pepper is my favorite Beatles album. So it's like, it was, it's cool to hear that in a more modern take. And those, those recordings have become my default mixes. And then uh, the white album, I would rank above it. Cause again, I think it is an improvement mix wise, but the bonus material is so great. Having all those Easter demos and, and there's a lot of cool yeah. bonus material on that one, but I'm glad they're doing all of them. I hope that as we're now getting into like the 55th anniversary of rubber soul or whatever, or that they drop the anniversary pretext altogether and, and just start like go do revolver and magical mystery. You know, they skip magical mystery tour, but you know, yeah, and I haven't heard any no. kind of official announcement, but I would assume that if they're going in order from, if you're starting with Pepper, that they're going to go through at least Let It Be, yeah. if they're going to continue anyway. And boy, would I love to hear uh, a stripped back version. And I don't mean Let It Be Naked version, but I mean, like, uh, you know, <laughs> you know where I'm getting. Of which one? Oh, yeah. Oh, of Let It Be. No, I would definitely like to hear a despectorized with all the... There's so many hours of bonus material on that that we haven't heard that I'm sure there's still some some cool moments they could uh, cultivate. And then all the singles. You've got you know so many singles that were released alongside these albums that we haven't got the remix of. Like I you know I want to hear the remix of Old Brown Shoe and and Ballad of John and Yoko and all those, you know, so it's I hope they keep doing it. I'll keep buying it. I do hope they keep doing it, but I I, I hope that this album didn't reveal that, um, as you mentioned with the B side of this one, that there, that there wasn't a rush to get things done. And so maybe things weren't paid as had much attention paid to it as maybe they paid attention to tracks like here comes the sun, you know, because if you're going to set the bar with Sergeant Pepper, which is easier to do than on an album like this, because, you know, techniques and technology was way worse when mm-hmm. Pepper was recorded than with, you know, Abbey Road. But still, all the same, if you're going to set the bar that high, you know, do the rest of the albums that kind of justice. You know, if it takes a little longer and you miss your your anniversary date, well, I think we can understand. It's been 50 years. Right. We'll yeah, take get it right. <laughs> take your time. Yeah. Well, unless you've got anything else that wraps up my thoughts on Abbey Road. No, I think that does it unless, you know, we get uh, a 60th anniversary overhaul. This uh probably be the last time we see this album I think for a while. so far in line of the album, 
or in this podcast, the only songs I've done so far for the pod for have been here comes the sun and Maxwell Silverhammer. Um, I think, yeah, that's right. So I still got a lot more podcasts to do to get the rest of the individual songs covered, but I like this. We'll have to do this again with uh, their other albums. Yeah. So Chris, you're on Twitter. Where can people find you? Well, you can't find me by my name. Uh, you'll have to find me at Crack and Wax. Um, I, I don't normally have my own Beatles-related Twitter account. You'll have to find me with my uh, my trading card <laughs> Twitter account. So that's uh, Crack and Wax. There's no G in there. Uh, it's C-R-A-C-K-I-N-W-A-X. Right. So that does it for our first Saturday album discussion. This is a long one, but... So a lot of stuff to talk about on this swingbyherohabit.com and um, you can read some articles that have been written about this album and other Beatles and kinks related things. And you can also get the rundowns of the weekly podcast alongside the actual songs we talk about. I will talk to everybody on Monday where we are talking about a magical mystery tour um, track actually that was a B side that I ignored for a long time and happened to enjoy quite a bit now. All right. With that, I will talk to you all on Monday. This podcast is presented by the Hero Habit Podcast Network. Swing by HeroHabit.com today to comment on this episode and poke around our growing database of sports and pop culture news, reviews, and collectibles. HeroHabit.com. Collect your heroes.